0: No, I've not preached here seven thousand times, but I have enough to where I've preached here enough. And if you're a new uh, person here, that you know uh, is not is new to you, Uh, but uh, I think I've gained gained enough credibility and trust. I hope that I can get away with something uh, that might be different than the ordinary. Uh, and uh, also, I've uh, preached here enough to where I feel comfortable with this congregation, and I, I really do. Now, why do I say that? Because um, I, I want to speak on a psalm and on a subject in that psalm that uh, is a bit tough. It really is. And I even asked uh, uh, the leadership to particularly pray uh, for this uh, Sunday and they said, okay, then come out at 8 o'clock and pray with the elders, which I did. And uh, uh, for grace and strength to minister this accurately. We are accurate. We are to be accurate handlers of the Word of God. That's a high and holy calling. It really is. So Psalm 139, I call the Omni Psalm. Uh, and uh, the reason is... Uh, The uh, four letters, omni, don't appear in the psalm, but um, the truth that this psalm brings out has often been expressed by three 50-cent theological words, Uh, uh, omniscience, uh, omnipresence, uh, and omnipotence. I'm from South Carolina, and at least when I was living in South Carolina too many years ago for you to even know, uh, I remember that there was a structure in Atlanta, Georgia, just down I-85 from where I lived, called the Omni. I asked people in the first service if they were aware that the building, the Omni, is still functioning, and nobody said, uh, so maybe it's no longer there. But uh, the purpose of that building was to serve in a number of ways, both for the basketball team, and I'm forgotten whether there's a hockey team there. Uh, but for musical venues, uh, even they had an evangelistic meeting there. Omni for many all uh, types of uh, of uh, meetings or purposes. And so uh, this omni-psalm is not all things to all men, but it deals with God in uh, ways uh, that He is omni, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And then to coin a word that we will see at the end, He's omni-holy. And it's in that section that we're sort of preaching toward today. Uh, sometimes you preach from a text, Steve. Sometimes you preach toward a text, okay? So I'm preaching toward the, uh, shall we say, more difficult, um, shall we say more (coughs) controversial section of this psalm. Now, what do I mean by that? Have you ever been reading the Bible and then run into a clunker? Boom! Whoa, wasn't planning on that. Here I was reveling with the psalmist with all of these wonderful expressions about worship, and he says, Break their teeth, O oh God. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, well, I know it must mean something. Uh, on. I'm reading, 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 just basking in the glory of the Psalms. Blessed be those who take your children and dash them against the rocks. (laughs) Wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Oh, that's a clunker. That's a clunker. Okay. Uh, We're going to see a clunker today. And it may jar you. Okay. There are two types of psalms. Psalms of orientation. Where the psalm is just as... Just so oriented to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. I'm oriented there. The psalmist is oriented. That's a psalm of orientation. But then there's sometimes psalms of disorientation. Like I've quoted part of them. And in Psalm 139, 22, uh, excuse me, uh, 19, through 22, we've got disorientation. Whoa. Uh, do not I hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Here's two words you need to know. Cognitive dissonance. You can look it up. There's Wikipedia right there on your phone. But don't look it up. Cognitive dissonance is what I'm just talking about. When your mind, cognitive, your cognitive gets jarred and your preconceived notions and your ideas about how the world works get jarred by something you read or something happens to you. Some, something when life slams you really hard and what you believe about God gets jarred. That's cognitive dissonance. And I do believe that in these psalms, sometimes called imprecatory psalms, we teachers like to use big words to impress people. Omniscience, omnipotence, and you know. Imprecatory psalms, which just means where the psalmist curses, not the name of the Lord in vain, no, but but pronounces a curse on people. Those are psalms uh, that I think cause us, and rightly, because we live in light of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching. It causes us a bit of cognitive dissonance. But cognitive dissonance is not bad. It's good. Because uh, uh, life is just filled with bumps. (laughs) Just filled with bumps. And you either stumble over them or run from them or you climb up on them and get over the top. Life is filled with cognitive dissonance. What are you going to do when life deals you a blow? You're going to learn from it. You're going to grow or you're going to give in to the dissonance. And dies spiritually. Now. This is what I want to talk to you about. Sounds exciting doesn't it? Can't wait right? <laughs> but before the dissonance comes. The reveling. In all. Of uh, the wonders. Of who our God is. Now there are four sections of this psalm. Uh, each six verses. Each. And. And. Um, uh, very neatly outlined like that, and would that we uh, had the time to go through the first 18 verses like we ought to. We will only scan them because we want to get to verse 19 and get jarred. <laughs> first of all, uh, we have uh, the uh, what is called uh, the omniscience of God. Our God knows us. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, there's the key, you know, God knows. When I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. I want you to notice something here. Yes, this is a theological psalm. It is a heavy-duty theological psalm. But it's not theology in the abstract. The psalmist spends absolutely no time with problems that the omniscience of God brings up. What are some of those theoretical abstract ideas? Does God know all things? Does he know the future? Are the open theists right? In that his knowledge is open to the future but he doesn't know the future is his knowledge of the future contingent on the actions of human beings these are all theological philosophical questions that the psalmist has nothing to do with later on we're going to talk about the omnipresence of god omnipresence of god questions can god be everywhere at once How can God be both in heaven and also in hell? If hell is a place of evil, how can God be there if he is perfect? How is God's omnipresence any different than the pantheism of eastern religions that teach all is God and God is all? You lie awake at night asking those questions, don't you? No, you don't. But the psalmist is not dealing with those abstract theological philosophical questions omnipotence of god god is all-powerful can god make a stone so big that he can't lift it you've wondered about that haven't you if he's omnipotent anyway if god is omnipotent why doesn't he abolish evil can he stop an evil person from doing evil things if he is all-powerful How can God be omnipotent and good at the same time if He allows what is not good in the world? (laughs) You drive me crazy with your questions, the Jewish lady says. Drive me crazy with your questions. Fiddler on the roof is coming. (laughs) The psalmist is not dealing with those abstract theological issues. And we know that Because he refers to I, me, or mine, these first person pronouns, 50 times in the Psalms. He is not concerned about some abstract theological philosophical question out there. He is concerned about how God's all presence, all knowledge, and all power relates to me. It's a very personal Psalm. That's why I want to emphasize it as I read through the first 18 verses. If it sounds odd that I'm emphasizing these, I want to call your attention to every time he says, I, me, or my. Again. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then at the end of each of these six verses... He has this response. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Our God is omniscient. He knows all things. But you know what? He knows me. Better than my wife, my spouse. He knows That can be a comforting thing, and it can be a terrifying thing. If you're trying to hide things from everybody else, it can be a terrifying thing. But it can be a great comfort that he knows, dear sister. He knows, dear brother. That's what the psalmist is talking about. And so before we ever get to those clunkers... We're in the midst of this glorying in God's omniscience. Secondly, verse uh, 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 7, omnipresence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are There. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your hand shall hold me. Keep in mind that this is poetry. Dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea, taking the wings in the morning. These are all poetic expressions. For going as far away from here as I possibly can go, he's there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me shall be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day when darkness is all around me. God's light is around me. He is with me is the point. Not some theological, philosophical, abstract idea. But the omnipresent God is with me. Fear not. I am with you. The most repeated command in the Bible is don't be afraid. I wonder why. You fill in the blank. You answer that. A little child, one of the greatest fears is the recognition sometimes when they're alone. Haven't thought about this? In over 60 years, when I was a little child, I went with my parents for the grand opening of a Sears. (laughs) Wow. Sears opens in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The whole city was out. 500 of us. (laughs) And we were in this gigantic parking lot that probably had spaces for 50 cars. And it was night. And I lost that hand of my parents. And all I could see were belt buckles <laughs> and fat bellies. <laughs> and I was scared to death because I was alone. And oh, boy, that was a comforting thing when my dad put that hand in mine. Don't be afraid. Billy. Billy. I'm here. Oh man, you need that. Fear not. I, why? Why don't be It's a stupid thing to say don't be afraid. If there's not a following sentence. A stupid thing to be afraid. Just, you know, the world says just keep a stiff upper lip. Good British. Keep upper lip. Hang in there. Be tough. Hang tough. Why should I hang tough? Why should I not be afraid? But when that sentence is added, Fear not, I am with you. Did it make sense? Fear not, I am with you. That's what omnipresence means to the psalmist. And it means that way to you. Fear not, dear sister. I am with you in sickness and in health. Fear not, dear sister. I am with you when your husband's on the other side of the world. And you got, yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Fear not, dear sister. Even when you're going to a strange country. Because I'm with you. It's not stupid advice. It's not hanging there. It's got teeth. And that's what the psalmist is saying. If I make my bed and shield, he's there. Omnipresence. Omniscience. Finally omnipotence. We'll get to the conquer. Just preparing you for it. Verse thirteen. For you formed my inward parts. No, my inward parts, my guts. <laughs> you I love this Hebrew word, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. What a statement. My wife loves hand work. And I know handwork is more than knitting. It's counted cross stitch and it's those other things that she does. <laughs> she tried to teach it to our, daughter, our daughters. And they were too busy playing ball. We had two athletic daughters. And too busy being pretty. And now our adult daughter. Guess what? Mom, could you show me how to knit? I'd like to teach my daughters. (laughs) And so grandma, my mom, she's called, loves teaching. Well, now her daughter has learned. (laughs) Her granddaughters now. And they're interested in it. They're interested in it. The divine knitter knitted me in my mother's womb <laughs> think about that the protoplasm the nerves the blood vessels knit one pearl two i praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made i am fearfully wonderfully made That doesn't mean I get scared when I look at you. It means, uh, you know, uh, fearfully and wonderfully made with respect and awe. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. Watch this poetic language. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. People say, what's that talking about? It's poetry. Poetry. Just as there is a cavern deep within the earth where it's pitch black. It was pitch black within my mother's womb. And he shaped me. Informed me. I'll get your attention on the next statement. You know the Bible says nothing about abortion. Got your attention? Alright. Somebody said, Severance, why did you entice and Tyson invite him, this heretic? Well, they also have a job right around the corner here too. What is this? The Bible doesn't doesn't nowhere it says thou shalt not abort a child in the womb. It doesn't have to. It leaves you to make a conclusion. If God was intricately involved, like a mother knitting, that thing in that mother's womb whatever you deal do with that quote thing in that mother's womb you're dealing with god's creation and you don't mess with god's creation it's so obvious there doesn't have to be a command sometimes the bible is more loud in its implicit teaching In it's explicit teaching. How can you destroy what God made? So, okay. I'll keep my job. Don't worry. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Omnipotence. See, that's what he's talking about. My frame, he made me. Well, isn't this a... Isn't it is sort of a self centered psalm? Me, my, me, my, I, me, my, my, in the Bible about God? Ah, that's the point, isn't it? It's God that made me. It's God that leads me. It's God that is my strength. God is with me. No, it's not a self centered psalm. The psalmist finds his identity in his relationship. To this all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And that's why he says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Watch, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. I, I, I. You're all over the place, God. And now he gets... the fourth point in the psalm and i've invented a word god is omni holy i know that's not a word i made it up if you've got a better one let me know and the next time i give this i'll put you in the powerpoint but i think you get the idea now you say well Is that really what verses 19 and following are talking about? I think it is. Now we get to the clunker. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. Ooh, wasn't expecting that coming. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord. Do not I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. He so oh, take that. There's the clunker. And let's be honest. If you don't experience some sort of cognitive dissonance as a believer in reading that, you're impenetrable. <laughs> What in the world is going on here? Some call these imprecatory psalms, and some people have a hard time with them. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. C.S. Lewis did not claim to be a biblical scholar. He wrote one book on a book of the Bible, Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a biblical scholar. Uh, I'm a layman. But And he confessed his difficulty with the imprecatory psalms. He says, at times they sound like something far less than Christian. But he continued to wrestle with them. And I'll read you a quote from him in just a minute. Now, how do we deal with these? I think if there's somebody who really wants to have a problem with a statement in the Bible and their reasoning from unbelief, I don't think anything you can tell them, can satisfy them if you really do not want to believe in everlasting torment there's no way i can rationally convince you of it that it's uh, you know uh, compatible with your uh, uh, ideas and 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 if a person wants to find a problem with the imprecatory psalms who is this God that teaches this there's nothing you can explain to them that's going to like rationally convince them that these Psalms are okay All right. but for the believer who is really trying to work through these things and not automatically come to the conclusion that because these things are here these are less Christian than the New Testament and we shouldn't really follow them there's a couple of things to keep in mind that at least will help us to maneuver through them and relieve some of the cognitive dissonance. But it's the cognitive dissonance that's forced us to think through these psalms. All right. Number one. The psalmist is not asking for personal vengeance. But he is committing the wicked to God's vengeance or judgment. That's the first thing. And once you get that in mind. It may not solve all the details of every Uh, point of language but it really will help you understand it David is not saying God give me a sword and I'll chop off that guy's head he's not saying that he's saying Lord they have sinned against you bring judgment on them I'm not going to do it though this really is illustrated in the life of David. Notice at the beginning of the psalm it says a psalm of David. Did David personify this? He did. Listen. Now I know you're a to read Bible church. You know the Old Testament from, uh, from Genesis to the Italian prophet Malachi. I know you know that. You don't need for me to review the entire story of David. So let me just hit a couple of things. David, for much of his life, early life, was a refugee. He was fleeing from Saul. Saul wanted to kill him. As a matter of fact, he tried one time to kill him in his bed, and surprise, he's not there. You recall the story. Do you recall the story? Say yes. Six of you said yes. And Michal helped him through the window. and (laughs) He didn't kill him. David knew then that he had to flee. You might say that David had every right to defend himself even to the point of hurting Saul. You might say that. But he didn't. He hid in the cave of Adullam hiding from Saul. And here comes Saul down south. He flees further south. And I think he's thinking, what if we ever face up and I have an opportunity to kill him? He did, twice. David is at this beautiful site on the Dead Sea. A beautiful site on the Dead Sea, yes. There's a beautiful site on the Dead Sea. It's called En Gedi, the mountain of the wild goat. Where's this beautiful spring with waterfalls right in the middle of the Judean wilderness. Saul's smart. He says, if he's hiding in the Judean wilderness, he needs water. He's going to go to a spring. Let's go to En Gedi. And guess what? David was there. En Gedi has a number of caves in the cliffs. And David and his immediate man are in the back of this cave in the dark. And who should come in to go to the potty? But Saul, evidently by himself. And when he is indisposed, I'm not going to describe it further. (laughs) Evidently facing out the cave. David's men says, now's the chance. Take it and run him through. I won't make any further comment about his incapacity to defend himself. And David says, no. And I think some of his fellow soldiers said you don't kill him now we got to keep running no the Lord made him king the Lord will have to remove him I'm not going to kill him touch not the Lord's anointed later on Saul is again incapacitated this time he's sleeping in camp and David risks his own life goes into the camp Right where Saul is sleeping. Takes his sword and kills him? No. Takes his helmet. risks his life. Uh, if this is being videoed, please show all of it. Not just that. <laughs> and he goes on the other side of the wadi. <laughs> and he says, Saul. <laughs> Saul. That's David's I'm over here. How do you think I got this helmet? Saul says, finally, you're more righteous than I am. And Saul finally goes home. He could have killed him. The writer of this psalm committed the wicked to God and didn't take personal vengeance now our lives may not be that dramatic <laughs> but I was talking to somebody recently and he said Dr. Warner what we're dealing with is how not to be bitter at the way we've been treated right If I have the opportunity, I'd get back at him. No. You leave him with the Lord. So that may help you in going through some of this. Also, this whole hate-love thing, really, I mean, just a couple things about that. Hate, hate, hate. In the Old Testament, when hate and love are together, they don't mean feelings of animosity Or feelings of good towards somebody. They basically mean choose or not choose. Malachi says Jacob have I loved. And Esau have I what? Hated. And it's quoted in the New Testament. That doesn't necessarily mean. That he had God has feelings of enmity towards Esau. It means he chose Jacob. And he didn't choose Esau. Because Jacob is the promised seed. That may help you in uh, a statement uh, of our Lord Jesus. Jesus had some clunkers. He really did. He said some hard things. You follow me. If you're not willing to follow me and hate your parents, you're not worthy of me. What does that mean? Hate my parents? I had a young believer, a teenage boy, uh, He says, Dr. Warner, I was reading this, and, you know, my parents are not saved, and and I'm to hate my parents. I hope my parents don't read this. (laughs) Well, what does it mean? It doesn't mean you follow Jesus, and then you plan the uh, 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 death of your parents. Of course not. But if it comes to a choice... You're going to choose your parents or God if it comes down to that choice. See? So it doesn't mean feelings of enmity. It means I'm choosing one over the other if I'm forced to make that choice. All right? So these um, imprecatory psalms, as hard as they are, at least there's a context in which we need to understand them. Also, the psalmist is not familiar with the modern distinction between hating the sin and loving the sinner. The ancient Hebrew did not make such a fine distinction between the person and the person's action. I know that meaning, and and I'm not arguing with that meaning, but nowhere in the Bible does it say uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. I understand what you're saying, but um, the Bible doesn't hold that distinction. Perhaps our problem with these passages, therefore, lies not in our exalted view of others, but in our low view of God. Do we hate what God hates? Does our heart so beat with the heart of God that we're consumed with what consumed God? Consumes God. Perhaps it's us moderns who are so concerned with the rights and feelings of others who have a problem with this language. Maybe if we matched the spirituality of verses 1 to 18, we would be in a position to judge the morality of verses 19 through 22. If these verses shock us, the fault is is not so much in the verses, it's probably in us. And so C.S. Lewis, after wrestling with what he thought originally were the low Christian view of these uh, psalms, said this in conclusion, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part, because they took right and wrong more seriously. I think that's the problem. We don't really understand what sin and, right and wrong is. We don't understand what evil is. Because we don't think like God. For if we look at their railings, the psalmists, we find that they are usually angry not simply because uh, these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong, are hateful to God as well as to the victim. Again, I don't know if that answers all the questions that people have with these psalms. But at least it provides a context in which we can appreciate better this strong language. Now, how does he end? He ends shifting from this dissonance to, again, a direct prayer to God. Notice how he echoes verse 1, which is already talked about searching and knowing and thoughts. By turning this whole experience into a closing prayer. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Same thing he said in verses 1 and 2. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist is concerned about his thoughts thoughts. And his ideas. And his heart. That this omniscient. Omnipresent. And omnipotent God. Would now. Thoroughly search him. I pray this every morning. I told the first. uh, Hour. Oh you know what I told the first hour. I'll tell you now. Because I'm going to finish early. Ask him back. (laughs) He finished early. Anyway. I'll tell you what i told them. i said i brought two sermons this morning i'll be honest i brought two sermons and i'm going to try this first one at the 8 30 service and if it bombs i'm going to give a, another one <laughs> so i took a vote of the elders between and they said yeah okay yeah yeah it's okay <laughs> because um I wrote a book on the Psalms called, uh, and I'm not here to sell it because I didn't bring any copies, <laughs> A Waco Harp, because I don't like to preach on the Psalms and take advantage of you by like selling books. But I will say what I wrote in the last chapter, what I learned in my journey through the Psalms, and, what, and that is, it's great to pray the Psalms. It really is. It's like a prayer book. And some of you like, think, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican prayer books. Uh, I don't want to pray anybody else's prayers. What if other people's prayers are better than your prayers? (laughs) That's the way it was with me. Somebody else's prayers are better than my prayers, so why can I use those and really believe them? So I pray the Psalms. And so I've learned to really, oh yeah, you know what does? (laughs) I know that none of you have your mind wander when you pray. I'm not asking for a raise of hands. But I do. I confess. When you're praying somebody else's prayers and you make them your own, your mind doesn't Taste and focus. And every now and then you can put up a personal prayer. But don't pray too many personal ones, you'll get sleepy. You know, uh, 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 uh. get back on track. Why? They focus on God. They focus on His glory. They focus on His omniscience and His wisdom. And that's what I want to pray about. Then there's personal prayers, even in the Psalms. And here's a personal prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Then I close with the last verse of Psalm 19. Every morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, my strength and my redeemer. You can't beat that type of praying. So we're going to pray, verses 23 and 24, together. This is always dangerous to have unison reading Today it is. I was saved when it was not only the King James, it was the old Schofield reference Bible. And uh, the preacher could say not only turn to uh, Hezekiah 22.4, he could say turn to page 28 and we'd all turn there. It was unison. Now somebody's got the KJV, somebody's got the NKJV, somebody's got the uh, NASB, somebody's got the ESV, somebody's got the NIV, and somebody's got the XYZ, and then there's all, <laughs> and here's somebody over here with the New World Translation. Oh, no, not that one. now. <laughs> Guess what? If we pray it, and you can read it, God will understand. <laughs> so let's pray it. In conclusion, 23 and 24. Ready? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen and amen.